Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we tackle the mysteries of the ocean and the tale of dark fish. Now everyone in all fields of science have blind spots and sometimes it takes an innovative use of technology or some strange occurrence to actually force us to open our eyes and discover what's out there. And that's how scientists are working to track all the mystery of just how much fish there are in the ocean and where they're all hiding. Have you ever had a blind spot? Perhaps in your room? There was a spot that you never cleaned or were always losing things in and you only discovered this, well, when you cleared everything out, perhaps when you were moving or redecorating and painting. Perhaps you've gone down to the shops only to find that they're all closed because of some major sporting event or holiday that you just weren't aware of. That kind of blind spot is where you're not aware of something that almost everyone else is. Psychologists like Luft and Ingham sort of define this as like the Jahari window. This is where you may hear phrases like known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns come from. But if you know something and it's also known to others, well, that's sort of like they call the arena. If it's not known to you, but known to everybody else, well, that's a blind spot. If it's known to you, but not known to other peoples, that's a facade. And if it's not known to others and not known to you, well, that's truly unknown. Sometimes when you do know something, or at least think you know something, that can also be pretty bad, because you can be convinced that you are absolutely certain that something is the way it is, only for new information to come along and completely shatter your worldview. For example, you might be convinced that the delicious clear, thin soup that your nonna used to make you, this big significant part of your heritage and culture that she called minestrone, was in fact not anything like any type of minestrone known to any good Italian. Now, that's a personal example of somewhere where I had a complete blind spot that I was unaware of at all. And not only was I unaware, I was convinced until my eyes were opened to that very different reality. And this reality eye-opening can occur in science too. Thomas Kuhn, the scientist and philosopher, really goes into this with his concept of paradigm shifts and scientific revolutions, where you see a big shift in scientific thinking and inquiry, when all of a sudden our understanding changes quite remarkably. Examples, of course, come to mind, like the transition from classical physics to the physics involving quantum mechanics, the discovery of electricity and magnetism, and the fact that they're linked And it can go on and on, particularly in other fields like biology as well, or chemistry. All of these resulted in large shifts in our understanding, throwing away what we knew before. It was either not incorrect or maybe wasn't the complete picture. These kind of blind spots also occur in science. And then there's things in science that are just plain unknowable. Now, for example, going back to quantum mechanics, we can't ever really know both the position and the velocity of an electron to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Nor can we ever really truly know what happened before the Big Bang, mostly because that concept may not even make sense. These are real unknowns. They're not only unknown, but they're also unknowable. So science is also full of these kind of mysterious things. Then there's the things that we know are out there somehow, but we don't know how. Now, in astrophysics and physics, this comes up constantly with the idea 
of dark matter and dark energy. We can infer through other measurements that something must be there, but we have absolutely no idea what it is or how to even measure it. And these kind of inability to explore or understand something can lead to blind spots simply because of the techniques that you use to image and to measure. This is one of the limitations for studying the early parts of the history of the universe, mostly because we rely on light. And without any other way to measure back then, it's really difficult to figure out what happened. There's a sort of limit before really light kicked off, before we could even measure. Thus we rely on things like gravitational waves to get closer and closer back to those first few fractions of a second after the Big Bang. Now that's in astrophysics, but the same thing exists in obviously biology as well. When we do drug discovery in chemistry and culturing of new therapeutic medicines, in, we can only really test and try what we think of and also what's easily culturable. If you can't grow it in a lab, well, how are you going to test, refine and develop based on it? That's why in drug discovery in particular, natural samples often lead to huge shifts in approach because all of a sudden we find some new bacteria or some new microbe that is doing something that we never even thought of trying or even in all the random combinations would not have been able to try because of course there's only so many things we can actually easily grow to test on scale these kind of limitations on our knowledge also make it difficult and lead from a scientific perspective to substantial blind spots not necessarily owing to anyone's particular misunderstanding of a topic but more the limitations of what's practical and measurable Now, physics, biology, chemistry, they're not the only ones struggling with this problem. One big unknown in our world that we know is unknown is the ocean. A scary fact to consider is that we have sent more people to the moon than we have sent to the deepest parts of our ocean. And we've explored more of the moon than we have the deepest parts of our ocean. That's because, well, the ocean is truly massive. The moon comparatively actually is quite small and we can see it all very easily from Earth, and we can conduct a detailed analysis without having to worry about that pesky thing, waves and water, getting in the way. Now, this means that the ocean isn't really truly as understood as we would like it to be. And it's difficult to study it because obviously satellites have their limitations. Even when it's not cloudy, you can only see so far down. And then light starts to fade away. And then this transition of the layers of the ocean in the water column, where light starts to get more and more obscured, it becomes even harder to understand exactly what's down there. Sometimes we get insights. For example, when a dead squid floats ashore, these deep sea squids give us an insight into what goes on at those very depths. Now, that's waiting for the random occurrence of a squid washing ashore. Sometimes we find out by studying deep inside whales' bellies full of food they ate as well. Now, but these are all snapshots, incomplete pictures, just like crewed missions down to the very low levels of the ocean, or even uncrewed missions, robotic travellers down to the depths. They only sample some tiny, tiny, minuscule percentage of what's actually going on there. And that means in the vast gyres, the large plains of the ocean floor, we know very little about we only know what we can trawl up, what we can ping with sonar, what we can see with satellites. 
But all of these things have their own limitations, which create blind spots. And these blind spots can lead to really varying understandings of not only what's underneath the seas, but just how much of it is there. Whilst astrophysicists have the struggle of trying to identify what is contributing all this mass and energy, dark energy and dark matter, they're trying to figure out, based on the mathematical evidence that they can see, what's causing this strange phenomenon. Marine biologists have it even harder. They know that something should be out there in the ocean. They don't know how much, they don't know where, but they do know that it's significant, and they do know it does its very good job at avoiding human detection. So this dark fish could make up up to anywhere between 65 all the way up to 95% of all biomass in the ocean. And these so-called dark fish, as Dr. Andrew Taylor puts it on Twitter, they contribute some insane amount of all life on Earth. But quite frankly, we have no idea about them and very little ability to even study them. So what exactly is going on here? We're gonna dive into the depths of the ocean to try and understand the mysteries of dark fish. Now in this, we're gonna talk about a couple of papers. As Dr. Andrew Taylor pointed out on Twitter, there's a fantastic paper published in Nature Communications with lead author, Javier Irgioin, and a large team of international collaborators published in 2014. That really outlines the struggles of trying to just measure how much life is in the ocean. We're also gonna talk about a 2018 paper with authors including Maria Caleja, and a number of other collaborators, of course, including Javier Hirojunian again. Now, this research is going to focus on the ocean depths, but what exactly do we mean when we say the deepest parts of the ocean? Now, the ocean is divided in this massive water column into layers, and these layers revolve around light. There's the epipelagic zone, the sunlight zone. This is the illuminated area of the water near the surface of the sea, around 200 meters down. In this zone, there's enough light available for creatures to produce photosynthesis. If you can think about it, this is where lots of plants and animals tend to concentrate, which would make sense because there's light. Now, when you go below that, you end up in the mesopelagic zone, the twilight. Now, the interesting part about the mesopelagic zone is that, well, it gets pretty dark pretty quickly there. In fact, when you get to the bottom of that zone, from the 200 meters down to the 1,000 meters, there's only 1% or less of sunlight getting down that deep. That means it starts to get really dark. Below that, of course, is the bathypelagic zone, the midnight zone, because the ocean is pitch black at this depth. There is no light managing to traverse its way all the way down from the sun through the layers of water above it. The only illumination you will find here is the illumination from bioluminescent organisms like anglerfish. Of course, when you get down through that bathypelagic zone, all the way down from 1,000 meters to 4,000 meters, you enter the abyssalopelagic zone, the abyssal zone. Often this is near the ocean floor. It goes from 4,000 meters down all the way to the ocean floor at whatever height 
it would be. There's no light, of course, and it can be very cold with incredibly high pressures. Such darkness, such high pressures, such depths leads to some pretty unusual creatures like squids, basket starfishes, swimming cucumbers, and even arthropods like the sea spider. They tend to be transparent and eyeless at this depth because, well, why would you need eyes when it's not possible to have light at this level? And of course, below that, you can get to the hadopelagic zone, the Hadil zone, like as in Hades of the Greek underworld, because that's where you get really in the depths of the ocean trenches. Now, there's life scattered all the way through these zones, and sometimes creatures move between the zones. In particular, the mesopelagic zone, the twilight zone, there's some really interesting behaviours that happen in this zone. Now, something strange happens in the oceans and in lakes even too. When it comes nighttime, even when the moon is out or maybe when the moon's obscured, something happens where creatures come up from the mesopelagic zone up into the epipelagic zone, that upper layer. Creatures like copepods and other organisms living in these layers move up and down between the layers. They come to the uppermost layer of the sea at the night time. And then when daylight comes, they return to their lower depths. This is called deal vertical migration or diurnal vertical migration. And it's pretty amazing when it happens because you can see it daily or changing based on the light. You can see it seasonally or you can see it even with different life stages of organisms. But nevertheless, there's this movement between the different layers of the ocean. Now, you would say, well, why is that significant? Well, the thing is, this can wreak havoc with navigational instruments like sonar. In fact, the only reason why we really know about this movement is of, because of a phenomenon called the deep scattering layer. Now, sonar, if you don't know, involves emitting noise, listening for the sound when it bounces back off something and using the time it takes to bounce and return to you to, to calculate the distance. Bats use this, dolphins can use a form of this with their clicking, and so do submarines. But ever since we developed this way back in the 1940s, scientists and also the people actually using the technology in the submarines kept getting strange readings. They would see a false sea floor often, pinging back at them, leading to obvious much panic. And they'd often see it around 300 to 500 meters deep at the day. But then at nighttime, it would be way less. This phenomenon was called often the ECR layer. Now, the thing is, this isn't to do with some strange unknown Thing happening in the ocean, some fault in a sonar system or the technology. Because what we now know is that this deep scattering layer was being caused by the influence of fish. Lots of tiny fish, like lanternfish, that do this migration, this deal vertical migration, daily vertical migration from one zone to the other, following the migrations of their food source, the zooplankton. Now, the reason why these fish break sonar is, well, these fish have a swim bladder that helps them dive and change their position in this water column. The problem is that's filled with changing amounts of water. And this can, of course, make things take longer or more time 
to bounce back to this ship or submarine emitting that sonar signal. So, when sonar reflects and bounces off all of those millions and millions of fish swimming in the ocean, it can make the submariners panic because they believe they're about to hit a false bottom, when in reality their signal is just getting distorted by a large amount of fish. Now, the thing is, this can be studied across the world, a bit like the dark matter example. The thing is, you can use this reflection of the signal, this deep scattering layer, along with lots of samples taken of this data from across the world, to investigate just how much biomass there is, because there has to be an awful lot of fish there to really throw off your sonars. So just how much fish is even in there? Well, the answer is, we don't know. And this is where it gets really tricky. Now, lanternfish and all these other small creatures, they are finely tuned to be able to detect movement many, many meters away. Now, that's great for a fish to help it survive, but means that if you wanted to sample it with a fishing net, there is no more perfect creature that is small, agile, and really good at th seeing things in a distance. And that basically means the lanternfish can avoid capture. If you did a sampling with it, well, try to trawl and see how much lanternfish were out there, you can get a pretty low estimate because they just tend to slip through the cracks and escape. But there is an awful lot of them out there. And we can check this data and adjust our samples with fishing by using this sonar data. And that's exactly what was done in this really long study of a ship that sailed all the way across the world, taking samples of the mesopelagic zone and trying to estimate the amount of fish in it to determine the volume of dark fish there. And the result was a staggering amount of fish live in this zone. 95% of the world's fish hide in this area. That is a huge amount when you consider just how many fish are in the sea. And what I mean by that is, well, normally scientists were saying, ah, yeah, the sea is like the top and maybe a few other things because that's what they can sample. But there's way more, orders of magnitude more lurking in this mesopelagic zone that we thought was dead, empty, a void of life. When in fact, not only is it thriving, it's bustling like a cityscape that we're only now starting to see all thanks to some sonar errors that we can now use to our advantage. The thing is, the mesopelagic zone is only the twilight zone, the one just beneath the sea surface layer, the epipelagic zone. So if we're only now starting to get a better understanding of the life that lurks just below that, that first ocean layer, the mesopelagic zone, well, what about the beyond that? The Darkness, the twilight zone is the mesopelagic, but what about the nighttime zones and the abyssal zones and everything else? Well, that's where recent papers come in that there's actually not just migration of creatures from the mesopelagic zone up to the epipelagic zone, there's also the migration of dissolved organic carbon. Now, the abyssal zone, that sort of lowest level, we start to get to the bottom of the ocean floor, and there's a lot of things like reduced minerals down there, particularly reduced carbon. This accumulates in the bottom of the ocean over decades and millennia. But small animals that migrate between these layers actually make a flux of this organic matter to create a chain. It means that carbon is available for microbial production and respiration at those different layers, which means there's a lot more 
energy and carbon flowing through these ecosystems than we ever considered before. Again, this is another blind spot that we're only now discovering, lurking in the abyssal zone and the mesopelagic zone. Food sources that we thought weren't there actually are there and quite abundant and quite available for creatures to use. This means that the gyres, the plains of the ocean that were often considered deserts, aren't deserts at all. They're teeming with life and they're teeming with resources that can fuel life. We just don't really know how to measure that well because, well, they dodge our nets. So we rely on other measurements, acoustic data, sonar, and lots of samples to try and fill in the gaps in our models. So whilst we have blind spots in the ocean, and we can't look at all of the ocean at once, like we can with, say, the moon, we're certainly getting better at understanding the sea and the dark fish that lurk in it. The oceans are way more alive than we give them credit for, and we're only really beginning to understand that now, starting only to explain that weird sonar results that we saw way back in the 1940s, and understand what was causing them was actually huge amounts of life we didn't know how to observe in the ocean. Now these two papers we've used as the basis for this episode, first one published in Nature Communications, with lead author Javier Irjonian, and et al., a large team of international collaborators, and the second paper from Kaleha, also published in the journal Frontiers in Marine Science in 2018. This has been the Young Scientist of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. A quirk of sonar led scientists to be able to discover just how many fish are hiding in the sea and where they're hiding in the depths of the ocean. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia. <laughs>